morning, Mosaic Church. If we have never met, my name is Brady, and I get to serve as the staff care pastor here. Um, and I tell you what, one of my favorite things to do is to get to sing together the truths about who God is. I love the songs that our worship team picks. Oh, man, so good, because it, it, it reminds me of the things that I need to be saying, the things that I need to be thinking, the things I need to be meditating on, and it's beautiful. It's, it's so great. I love that passage that Hannah read from Philippians, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I've suffered the loss of all things and count it as rubbish. I was at uh, the grocery store this week and I was checking out and uh, the sweet lady asked me the question that you get asked every single time. In fact, it's, I'm, I'm guessing every single one of us has had this experience. But, but this time it, it struck me a little bit differently. She asked the question, did you find everything you needed? Are you guys, who's been asked that? You've been asked that before, yeah? That question, okay, so normally that question just it unnerves me a little bit because I have this fear of making people wait. And when you're at that point in the journey, there are people behind you and they are waiting on you, right? And I also think when they ask you, do you find everything you needed? I'm like, I mean, I know how this works. Like if, if I didn't find everything I needed, I'm in the wrong spot, right? Like this, the, the stuff I needed is not here. It's, it's the stuff that I don't need, like the candy and the magazines that, you know, are, they're trying to get me as I go out the door. But she asked me that question. And, and I tell you what, uh, it, it just struck a chord with me because of the passage that we've been meditating on, uh, that we're going to be talking about uh, the, today, this morning. And, and I just thought to myself, when was the last time I actually bought out of need? I can't think of the last time I bought out of genuine need, even at the grocery store, food, right? The average healthy adult can go many, many days without food. In fact, day one, you just burn the excess sugar that you got in your body. Day two, your body produces extra sugar that you can burn, and then it begins to go into the fat stores that we have. And then it's not until day three, four, or five that you begin to break down muscle tissue. So like, I mean... I don't buy food when I need it. Now, it's okay. It's okay to pre-buy food. But I tell you what, like, I wonder, how long could I go with the food that I currently have in the pantry, in the refrigerator, in the freezer before I would actually need food? Probably a while. And that's food. I mean, that's, that's a quick one. That's an easy one. What about clothing? When's the last time I bought clothing out of need? Never? I could probably go the rest of my life and never need to buy another item of clothing. And yet, and yet, that's not the way that I live. And here's what the odd thing is. Like, if you think about all the things that you buy, not out of need, but out of excess, out of want, it's really interesting. I'm guessing that we don't feel like we have everything we need. When you look at all the statistics, and you can, you know, measure them a number of different ways, but basically what all the experts say is that everyone in this room is more wealthy than 90% of the rest of the world. At least, that's conservative estimates. Maybe 95%. Do you, now, now think about that for a second. Do you feel like you are in the top 5% or 10% of wealth in the world? I don't. I don't. I don't feel wealthy. I don't wake up and think, oh, let me go take a dip in my, you know, you know, vault of coins like Scrooge McDuck, right? That's, that's just not how I feel, right? I, I'm not going to go over to my, you know, helicopter and, you know, let it take me to my private jet and fly to the Poconos where I have my fifth house. Like, I, like, I don't even know where the Poconos is. But, I, but here's the deal. Like, 
that's not how I feel. I have this, this picture in my mind of what wealthy feels like, and it's not me. It's not my life. It's not the life that I live. But what's crazy is that I have everything that I need. I haven't shopped beyond need. I haven't shopped like out of need in a long time. And yet I feel like I don't have enough. I feel like I don't have enough. And yet I do. There's a problem there. There's this incredible word that Paul talks about. And he talks about how it's mysterious. It's the word contentment. Contentment. It's, it's, it's that feeling that you feel when you've had a good meal and you, you've eaten it and then someone brings out this incredible dessert and you say, nay, I'm satiated. <laughs> you know, like, like that's contentment. Has anyone ever felt that? I've never felt that. I've never one time have I ever felt full enough to say no to d- dessert, Right. Like dessert is a big deal. It's important. Like you, you got it. You got to overeat to get dessert, right? It's worth it. It's worth the pain that you're going to experience later. But contentment, it's, it's this feeling where almost like the Hebrew word shalom, where everything is right in the world. My relationship to self, my relationship to others, my relationship to God, my relationship to creation. It's just as it needs to be. And I'm like, Mm. I'm content. Would you like it? No, I'm good. And what's amazing is that I believe Paul says we as Christians should experience that word often. In fact, that should be the typical experience that we have. But it's a mysterious thing, contentment. And Paul says he has learned the secret to contentment. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to look at the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy. We've been in 1 Timothy for a while. And Paul talks about a lot of the things surrounding this idea of contentment. So grab your Bibles. If you have, then we're going to turn to 1 Timothy. It's near the back of your Bible. If you've never turned there before, it is right before 2 Timothy to help you know where it is. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, you'll notice we're going to start in verse 2-ish. Uh, What you'll see is verse two starts a paragraph before, and then there's a space in your Bible and another title heading. And then you've got uh, verse two continuing on. Just so you know, you don't need to worry about that. That's okay. Later, much, much later than after these were written, did we do the chapters and the verses? They're not inspired, right? It's okay if, you know, you got a little odd verse division every once in a while. And you're like, I don't, Really? Should it be in the middle of the sentence? I don't know. Maybe it should. I don't know. I didn't do it. But, you know, maybe a guy was riding, you know, on on his horse and, you know, from one town to the next doing these verse numbers and they hit a bump. It's okay. I'm not going to judge him, right? He probably did a better job than I I would do. But sometimes you'll notice little things in uh, in your Bible that are like that. This is one of those times. So here's what it says at the second half of verse two. Paul says to Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining 
that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing uh, out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, I don't know if you knew how to spell birth pangs, but now you do. P-A-N-G-S. Yeah, the first time I learned that, it blew my mind. There are certain passages in Scripture, particularly in the letters that Paul writes, that are just extremely dense and thick. There is so much in them. The words that he chooses, the uh, orderings of things that he uses, the comparisons and contrasts that he does, there's just so much in there. And it can be difficult as you go to read and go to study to figure out what is Paul actually trying to say here? What is he promoting? What is he saying is not good? And so we use different Bible study techniques to do this kind of thing. And last time I was here, we, we used some of those, right? We circled some things. We put squares around things, underlined some things, highlighted some things. I'm just going to show you my notes. And really, it's not my notes. It's Lane, who is great at design, making my notes look far better because I don't draw circles that beautifully. But a passage like this, and this is, this is without, this is sans all the arrows and stuff that I did to connect different things. But you look at this and it's not necessarily helpful. It doesn't make it any more helpful because you have so much writing in there that makes it even a little bit more confusing. I mean, you have all these different numbered things that Paul's got going on. You have all these different circled things, all these different highlighted things. So sometimes it's helpful to use another method. So what I did was I outline the scripture. For all of you that have the first Timothy journals, what you can do, you don't have to do this, but what you can do in, in a space of this, that's like so dense and thick with theology and teaching, you can to the other side, or you can just take out a, a, you know, a sheet of paper and you can begin to rewrite the scripture, but write it in an outline format. And we're going to go through it like that. I'm going to tell you, it's going to make it so much more clear. So I'm going to read right through it once again, but we're going to have it in an outline format on the screen. So just look up on the screen and then I'll read through it. Paul says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You do that and it begins to make a little bit more sense. It begins to be a little bit more clear 
and you can see what's going on. So now let's take it section by section and let's work through and see what Paul is getting at here because there is something so worthwhile and many things actually, but one really cool thing that I want us to take this morning. So Paul begins, he says, teach and urge these things. A couple things. First of all is these things. Sometimes in the scriptures, as you're reading it, there will be a call back to say, hey, remember what has already been written? Go back to what has already been written and put that in your mind. Paul is telling Timothy to remember all the things that he wrote in this letter, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. He's saying, those are the things that I want you to teach. Things like truth matters. Things like the aim of our charge is love. Things like, be careful who you put into leadership in the church. That matters. That's a big deal. Right? All of these different things, how we should care for widows, how the church should operate as a family. He says, I want you to teach these things. But he doesn't say, I just want you to teach these things. He says, I want you to teach and urge these things. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the difference between teaching and preaching. But right here, Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to preach. I want you to preach because teaching is like you, you say some stuff and everyone has this, this, this uh, experience. You think, hmm, that's fascinating, right? That, that's teaching, right? Or you're just asleep on your desk. I don't know. Preaching is where, where something is being said to such a degree that your soul wells up in a hmm. Have you ever had that? You, you've been listening to someone preach and all of a sudden your soul like just, it comes out in a noise. Mm. And sometimes you say, amen. <laughs> amen. And you might even be like, mm, yes. So let's, let's try this. this. This might be a reaction if someone began to preach. So I need everyone to say, amen. amen. But say it with some gumption. Amen. amen. Now just, mm, mm. And then say, preach it, brother. Preach it, brother. That is preaching. Right, you will know when preaching breaks out on this stage when some noises begin to happen, right? That's preaching. And this is what Paul is saying. Timothy, the things I'm telling you to teach is not easy stuff. And it matters because the people you're talking to are the bride of Christ. And the way the bride of Christ lives matters because we display the gospel. There are people out in the world that don't know what Jesus is like. They don't know what God is like. And when we live in a way that honors and displays him, it matters. Amen? Amen. Amen. Paul says, teach and urge these things. Timothy, preach it. And then he gives a contrast. Now, Timothy, what has been going on is false teaching. And he talks about this false teaching and these false teachers. He says this, if anyone, and he goes into, you guys remember Jeff Fox, where they, you might be a redneck if. When I was growing up, I loved that because I lived in Redneckville. I live in the hills of Missouri, right? We, we had, you know, like that was, that was my people, right? A lot of people that I live with, their family treated and fork very much, right? I mean, it was, just, it was just kind of the way that we did. And so I love when Jeff Foxworthy would give us these tests to let us know if we might be a redneck. And I have been a redneck a number of different times in my life, right? Now, Paul is saying this might be false teaching if, right? So here's the deal. There's all kind of teaching that goes on in our day and age, right? We've got podcasts, we got YouTube, we got, uh, you know, just, just here live on stage. There's all kind of things. We got books and we need to know what is true teaching and what is false teaching, right? Because sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, right? 
Sometimes it sounds good. Sometimes it feels good. Sometimes it speaks to some of the things that we're longing for and yearning, wanting to hear. And it feels right, but it's not. So how do we know? Paul gives us a list. This might be false teaching if it, it is a different doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is what the church, looking at the Bible, has said, yes, the Bible teaches these certain things. We know that to be true. That's doctrine. So for instance, the Trinity, right? The church throughout the last 2000 years has affirmed over and over and over that the Bible teaches the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons, right? As Dr. Seuss would say, one what and three who's. That's that we believe in the Trinity, right? The, the Bible teaches that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. We believe that. The Bible teaches that salvation is a gift from God, right? It's, by sal- it's salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. This is doctrine. Paul says if it's different than sound doctrine, then it's false teaching. And then he gives another example. He says, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, throughout the Bible, all of it is the word of God. It's all true. It's all important. It all matters. But we do have the words of Jesus. And do you know how you can tell whether it's the words of Jesus or not? It's in red. Yeah. So some Bibles have two colors. I just said three. That's not three. But it does have three colors, white, black, and red. And, and uh, the words that are in red, those are the words of Jesus. Right? And Paul is saying, you need to pay special attention to the words that Jesus said. They matter. And if someone is not agreeing with those things, that is false teaching. And then he gives us another one. Uh, teaching that, that accords with godliness. So if the teaching does not accord with godliness, it is false teaching. Right? If it doesn't produce godliness, then it's, then it's not good teaching. Right? The teaching is true, but it also produces fruit. He goes on. He says this. Let's talk about the character of these people who teach false teaching. He's puffed up with conceit. Right? They're proud. He understands nothing. He's ignorant. Right? Talking like he knows what he's talking about, but doesn't actually know what he's talking about. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Now, this is important. Could someone study the Bible and another person study the Bible and they come to different conclusions on certain things? Right? Yeah, right. That, that happens. And Paul is not saying just agree to disagree on everything. That's not what he's saying. If you're studying, and we should study in community because it protects us from our own ignorance, right? Our own misunderstandings. We study together, and when we disagree, it's good to talk about that and say, wait, wait, where where are you getting that Jesus is only human? Help me understand that. Let me show you what the rest of Scripture says so I can prove to you and show you that Jesus is no actually God and human, right? It's important to have those discussions, but And you know, you know it when you see it. There are certain people who have an unhealthy craving for controversy. They just love controversy. They love to stir the pot. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Every friend group has one, right? If you don't have one in your group, it's you, right? So (laughs) Paul says, a a characteristic to help you know whether it's probably a false teacher is if they have an unhealthy craving for controversy. And now he talks about what it produces, the type of people and the type of things it produces. It says, which produce, right? The false teaching, which produces envy, which is like jealousy, dissension, which is like strife and contention, slander, which is disrespect, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. It produces 
division. Unity is so important in the church. It's so important that Jesus prayed that we would be unified. It's so important that if you look at Paul's letters, there is a thread of unity in every single one of Paul's letters. Unity in the church matters. It matters that we as a community, we as Jesus's bride are unified. And what false teaching does is it divides. It causes division. It causes polarization. In the body, we should be a group that can disagree on matters that don't uh, come to eternity, but stay unified, right? We should be a place that can disagree about secondary issues and stay unified and stay family. But it's hard. False teaching produces division. It produces polarization. It produces hatred and envy and jealousy and strife. It divides the body. Good teaching, godly teaching does the opposite. And then he talks about the people that get produced from false teaching. People who are depraved in mind. They've got a twisted mind. They are deprived of the truth. They are lacking the truth. And they're imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, if this were a Baptist church, and it's not, but if it was, I would tell you that what it produces people who are depraved, deprived, and deceived, you know? Because then you could remember it better. And if that helps you, you can write that down in your, in your Bible journal or even in your Bible. But we want to bring to mind the things that false teaching produces. Now, this is the key here. Paul makes a big transition here, and this matters. So, so keep this in mind. He says, what they imagine is that godliness is what? A means of gain. Godliness is a means of gain. That's what false teaching produces. And Paul says this. He says, however, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's not a means to gain. It is gain in and of itself. Godliness with contentment is gain. Now I want to work, look at these two words, godliness and contentment. These two words are really cool words and they bring out a full understanding of what Paul is talking about here. There's these two words, godliness and contentment. Here's what godliness is. It's awesome respect accorded to God, devoutness, piety. And if you look at those last two words, devotion and piety, devotion is love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person. Piety is reverence or belief accepted with unthinking reverence. It's like what God says goes. Even if I disagree with it, even if I think it's not that great, if God says it, it is truth. It is fact. It is the way I will shape my life. Godliness is basically a one word description of the Christian life. It's a reverent devotion for God that produces a life that looks like Jesus. That's what godliness is. Reverent devotion for God that produces a life that looks like Jesus. That's what godliness is. And Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. And contentment, there are two aspects of this that matter greatly. There's an external physical reality, and then there's an internal mental reality. The first thing is an external state of having what is adequate. Not all the wants and desires and extras, but just what is adequate. It's having the circumstantial nature that I have what I need. Food, clothing, air, 
water, shelter, whatever, you know, Maslow said in his hierarchy of needs, the base things that we need. And then secondly, and this is huge because this matters when it comes to what Jesus is doing in and through us. It is an internal state of being content with one's circumstances. It's not your circumstances changing to make you feel differently. It's your circumstances staying the same, but God doing something in you that changes the way that you experience your circumstances. Being content with what you have, satisfied with what you have, right? They thought that godliness was a means to gain. And Paul says, no, godliness with contentment is itself great gain. Great gain. And then he goes in and says some things about this. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take uh, we can't t- take anything out of the world, right? That makes sense, right? When the stork brought you to your mom, like you didn't have bags with you or you didn't have a bunch of stuff with you, right? You came with nothing. And then when we die, none of the stuff that we accumulate is going with us. Your wardrobe wardrobe's not going with you, right? All of your titles that you've earned at work are not going with you. All of your bonuses that you've accumulated are not going with you. Your savings account's not going with you. Your life insurance is not going with you. In fact, your life insurance is for when you die, right? To stay there with the people that are here, right? We didn't bring anything with us. We can't take anything with us when we go, right? This is Paul saying, don't you understand why godliness with contentment is great gain? Now I put in parentheses, uh, um, I put accept godliness, right? Because Paul says other, in other places that the character that Jesus forms in us goes with us and the things that we do to build up God's church, that goes with us somehow. I don't know exactly how it goes with us, but it does. But all of the other worldly things we accumulate, they don't go with us. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But if we have food and clothing, right? Just our base needs. If we have food and clothing with these, with godliness and contentment, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The desire to be rich, the desire to have more is super dangerous. It will plunge you into destruction For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not that money is evil. Money is not evil. Money is just a thing. But the love of money, the desire for more, that is a root of all kinds of evil. That love for money, that love for more, that never being satisfied produces all kinds of evil. It is through this craving this never being satisfied, this desire, this hunger, this insatiable thirst. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It's that through the love of money, we hurt ourselves. It's not like there's some external punishment being done to us. Paul is saying we are piercing ourselves with pains as we do this. Now there's this movie that I haven't seen it's called Wall Street, but somebody reminded me of this clip from this movie, and it's a really powerful 
picture of the human craving for more. There are two actors in this scene. You've got Shia LaBeouf, who's the younger one. You've got Josh Brolin, who's the older one. And the younger one is being approached by the older one for a job. And the younger one is asking him some questions about this job. Take a look at this clip. What's your number? Sorry? Oh, we'd start you at 300 like everybody else. I mean, as a partner, I only pull in 600, and the bonus is... No, no, no. Your number. The amount of money you would need to just walk away from it and live. See, I find that everybody has a number, and it's usually an exact number, so what is yours? More. And that is so telling. He's saying in this game of making money in Wall Street, is there a number that if you got that amount of money, you would feel okay with leaving the game? And he said, my number is more. It doesn't matter. Whatever I have, I will always want more. He has this fleshly desire, this worldly craving to continue to accumulate, to continue to possess. He needs more and more and more. And we could sit there and we could judge this mindset, but so often it pervades our own hearts and our own minds. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, like our worldly twisted desires, which wage war against your soul. Peter says there is a war going on inside you. Inside every single one of us, there is a war going on. Every single one of us has twisted desires, broken desires that always want more, always long for more, always craving for more, new, better, different. Whether it's money, whether it's relationships, whether it's something about ourselves, our body, our personality, our gifts, our talents, our house, our cars, whatever it is, there's some twisted thing inside of us that continues to cry out for more and it is waging war against our very soul. And we live in a unique time in history where our culture is pouring gasoline on that fire. After World War I, there was this great financial boom in America. And the people that had big companies that sold American stuff got super concerned that Americans would stop buying because they had gotten to the place where they owned everything they needed. And so they did this brilliant thing. They started using the work of Freud through his nephew, and they began to change their advertising strategy. And here's what Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers said. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Every single day, all the advertisements that you see as you're scrolling on social media, as you're watching television, as you pass billboards are designed psychologically with scientific information to make us crave more, to want more, to inflame our desires, to make us want even when we don't 
have any need. And it plays on this human twisted yearning for more. We are in a war for our souls and we have got to fight the good fight. Now here's the scary thing. Our twist desires don't lead us to what we want. My brother once told me the worst thing in the world is not never getting what you want. It's getting what you want and realizing it doesn't satisfy. Or the old adage, I climbed to the top of my ladder and behold, it was leaning against the wrong building. It's this this idea that we can strive our entire lives and when we achieve the thing that we thought we wanted, realizing it does not satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The enemy, he only wants to rob us of satisfaction, to rob us of life, to rob us of contentment. That's his goal. That's his desire. That's his plan. You see, what we can do is we can so obsess over the good that we don't have that we ruin our experience of the good God has given us. We can so fixate on the good that we do not have that we ruin our experience of the good God has already given us. Have you ever been there? Right, you've got what you need. You got the things that maybe even that you wanted and yet you see something different. You see something newer. You see something that seems better and you start to not enjoy the thing that you have. You cease to be content with the relationship you have with your spouse. You cease to be content with the stuff that you have, the technology. You cease to be content with the clothing that you have. You cease to be content with your personality, with your body type, with your face shape, with your hair color, your eye color, right? This is what we do. There's a war in our soul that the culture is pouring gasoline on that makes us want to be discontent and continually desire and crave and plunge ourselves into ruin. This is what Paul is saying. This is dangerous. But if we look at the life of Paul, it is a brilliant case study. So Paul, I don't know how much you know about him, but when he was known as Saul, He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In his profession, he was rising to the top, right? He was one of those people that you look at and you think, oh, you're going places, right? You're going to do well. You've got the personality. You've got the brains. You've got the gifting. You've got the knowledge. You've got everything that you need. And he was rising up the ranks. In his career, there was no one like Paul who was rising faster than Paul. In fact, the top person at his job, the CEO of his job, gave him a special assignment to stamp out the competition. That's where Paul was, right? He had what he needed financially. He was going places in his career. He had respect and admiration and was doing great. And then he begins to follow Jesus. And what happens when he follows Jesus is, first of all, he loses all that. And then let me describe to you how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about his experience since following Jesus. And he says, man, I've been through greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. That's 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Which after the first time, don't you say that this is not a viable means of transportation? 
how many people after the Titanic got back on? But Paul, right? Three times he was shipwrecked for the gospel, for God, for the glory of God. Night and day adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, obviously, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul's experience before Jesus circumstantially. Paul's experience after Jesus circumstantially. And yet, get this, he actually writes this in authenticity. Hannah read it earlier. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count it as rubbish, as filth in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, you look at my circumstances and you think you're crazy, but let me tell you what Jesus does, has done in me that I know him to such a degree, to such an extent that I've realized that just knowing him is far greater. It far outweighs anything I had before. And it far surpasses all of the suffering that I've experienced so that in my heart and my mind, by knowing him and experiencing him and being with him, I know the secret to contentment. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul meditated on the surpassing value of knowing Jesus and he experienced a contentment that is difficult to describe. All this stuff I gained, I counted as filth. It's nothing. All the experience that I had in that, all the endorphins that I experienced, it's nothing compared to just knowing Jesus. All of these difficulties, all of these toils, all of these things I've gone through, it's nothing when I have Jesus, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord, surpassing worth. You know something that's of surpassing worth? Something that you can't, it's like, it's not even a comparison. It's so much better. It's so much greater. It's so much more. This is what Paul was talking about. Jesus talks about it to two sisters. He's having a conversation One of them, Martha, has a lot of things going on, a lot of good things. She's doing some really great things. She's serving Jesus. And she's worried. She's anxious. She's distracted. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is necessary. Mary, your sister, who is sitting at my feet, engaging in relationship with me, she's chosen the good portion. I love that phrase, the good portion. In my translation, it says the center brownie. You know what I'm talking about? Right? When when, when we were growing up, we we would share desserts as a family. And that is a terrible practice unless you want your kids to be good competitors. And we are. But man, you would go after that dessert. Like it was like someone said go and we'd be like shoveling it in, right? And you wanted the good portion, right? You wanted the piece with with the brownie, with the ice cream and with the fudge. And you didn't care if your siblings got anything, right? You wanted the good portion. 
When you made cinnamon rolls in the morning, it was a center one, right? You got all those other ones around it, but you got the center one, it gets bigger, right? It's the brownie that's still kind of mushy a little bit. It's fantastic. Some of you guys are edge people. That's fine. That can be your good portion. But for the rest of us sane people, the center brownie, that's the good portion. If you don't remember anything for day, remember Jesus is the center brownie, okay? <laughs> Jesus is the good portion. The value of knowing Jesus, the value of experiencing Jesus, the value of being with Jesus is of such surpassing worth that everything you've ever worked to gain is nothing. And every suffering you've ever gone through, as awful as, as it is, is not worth comparing to the glories that will follow. Jesus is the good portion. And Paul says, in different words than Peter, there's a war in your soul that our cultural is, it is fueling, that the enemy wants to use to plunge you into disaster. And you've got to fight the good fight. There are two important ways to help us fight this fight. Man, this week, let me tell you, as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about contentment. I was embarrassed at how often I experienced discontent in all aspects of my life. I can't tell you how often some thought would come to my mind that was basically discontent. I want to look different. I want to feel different. I want to have more. I want to have different. I want to have newer, right? Discontent happened all the time. And so what I began to do is I began to do two things. One, in line with Paul, I began to meditate, which is the Christian practice of thinking about a lot, the truths of scripture. I began to meditate on the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I just began to, to think about that. Think about how valuable Jesus is, my relationship with Jesus, who he is, what he does in me, what he's done for me, what he is doing in me. And secondly, I began to practice the spiritual discipline of gratitude, which is even when I don't feel like it, that's why it's a discipline, I begin to think through and thank God for all the things that he's done for me, even sometimes the things that I don't yet know why I should be grateful for. But I started with, God, thank you that you created me. Thank you for giving me breath. Thank you that I'm able to walk around. Thank you that I have a job. Thank you that I have a spouse, an incredible wife. Thank you so much. God, thank you that you adopted me into your family at no cost to me, but great cost to yourself. Thank you for paying the penalty. And thank you that as far as the East is the West, so far you've removed my transgressions from me. God, thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that I'm free. Thank you that my eternity is secure. Thank you that I can be with you forever. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I tell you what, as I began to do these things by God's power of his spirit inside of me, the discontent changed into contentment. And I began to see what Paul was talking about, the mystery surrounding contentment and the secret to enter into it that it is walking in the footsteps of Jesus and just meditating on the fact that he is the good portion and taking time to be grateful for all that he has done in me, for me, and is doing through me. 
And it changed my experience. I encourage all of us today, begin fighting the fight that is going on, waging war for your soul. Because by God's power, with his spirit, you can gain victory and experience what Jesus said. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. God doesn't want you to continually be craving in your fleshly desires and thinking you don't have enough. Instead, in spite of your circumstances not changing, he wants to work a miracle inside you that allows you to say, you are enough for me, no matter what may come. The surpassing worth of simply knowing you is of such greater value that I am content. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are God and you are good. You are so, so good. We praise your name. Thank you for so many things, God, things that we don't even know that you are doing for us, that you are working in us, that you have done for us. Thank you. God, we pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit begin to experience contentment in you. That we would realize that godliness itself with contentment is the gain. Help us to see you as the good portion. Help us to value you that highly. And I pray that we would experience that shalom, that contentment, that satisfaction, that feeling that all is right because we have you and no one can take it away. Help us, Lord. Help us to value you rightly. In the name of Jesus, amen.